the Bain Free Radio Hour. On the podcast, largemouth bass hit on fairies at a big lake tournament in Arkansas, but they're not hitting in a romantic way. Forced perspectives and supernatural resolution, plus a special audio presentation redux all right now. Welcome to the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. It's an honor to have you along. I'm Bain Senior Editor Tony Daniel. This time we have Tim Powers, the great fantasy author, wonderful storyteller, winner of many awards, and herder of many ghosts, talking to us about his new novel, Force Perspectives. Really looking forward to that. This novel is set in L.A., which is Tim's actual stomping grounds, and Tim's L.A. novels are always full of really cool stuff that he's dug up about L.A., literally dug up in some instances. So stay tuned for that. Plus, we present a special rerun of an excellent audio story presentation from the hallowed and haunted coffers of the Bain Free Radio Hour podcast. Now here's the news. Hey, get in on the March contest while you can. It's a fun one. Curtains for Humanity. In Frank Chadwick's latest novel, Ship of Destiny, Sam Bitka and his crew encounter a race of immortals bent on destroying humankind. Chadwick puts his own unique spin on the tale, but this isn't the first time aliens have attempted to take humans down a notch, in fiction at least. So, in a short paragraph, a hundred words or so, tell us what your favorite science fiction novel, film, or television show in which extraterrestrials threaten our existence is, and why, uh, for a chance to win a copy of Ship of Destiny, signed by Frank Chadwick. Send your entry in the hollow body of an email to contest at bain.com and send those in by March 20th. And if you win, we'll send you a free signed copy of Ship of Destiny by Frank Chadwick. So get them in. want to welcome Tim Powers back to the podcast. Hey, Tim, it's great to have you back. Hello, great to be back here. Always fun. Tim Powers won the World Fantasy Award twice for the critically acclaimed novels Last Call and Declare. Um, Declare also received um, the International Horror Guild Award and uh, On Stranger Tides inspired that um, video game series and, and sold to Disney for the movie franchise installment of Pirates of the Caribbean on Stranger Tides. Um, his classic was it? Yeah. And you visited the set and things like that, right? It's, yeah. Yeah. Got to chat about Hunter Thompson with Johnny Depp. <laughs> did, uh, did Depp meet him or did he yeah, meet they you? Were, they were pals. Well, they in did, fact, uh, he uh, did that movie, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah, and Depp paid for uh, Thompson's ashes being fired out of a cannon at the memorial service. <laughs> well, Hunter Thompson would have liked that. Yeah. Depp was right. <laughs> I used to... I don't know. Did you ever meet um, Jack Womack, the uh, science fiction writer? Yeah, he went a couple times. 
Yeah. Jack was, I was roommates with Jack um, for a couple of years back in uh, when I lived in New York. And he had a, uh, he had a portrait of Hunter S. Thompson that Hunter S. Thompson had shot up on his wall. <laughs> That's very cool. And Jack was a collector, and man, he had uh, that was one of his his showpieces. So, anyway, um, let's go on. Um, the Anubis Gates, uh, your first. Well, it wasn't your first novel, not at all. Um, but uh, it was a novel that won the Philip K. Dick Award, and uh, I consider it, and many consider it, a modern science fiction classic, kind of the the progenitor of the steampunk genre, also. Um, Tim won the the Dick Award again for uh, Dinner at Deviant's Palace, another great book that I love. Um, many of his novels, such as Last Call and Alternate Routes, are sort of the secret histories, and we'll talk about that maybe a little, which are, I guess Alternate Routes isn't really a secret history, um, and uh, Force Perspective. Yeah. Um, they're not set in the past. Um, right. They have elements from the past which come in. Anyway, uh, use, uh, but you do use real historical events in which supernatural and metaphysical elements influence the story in weird and compelling manners. Oh, yes, you do. Um, Tim grew up in Southern California. He went to Cal State Fullerton with a bunch of other science fiction writers. And uh, you're also a practicing Catholic. I hope you're getting good at it uh, because we're going to need practicing that. Practicing long enough okay. now, yeah. Who claims stories are more effective and more truly represent the writer's actu uh, actual conventions when they manifest themselves without the writer's conscience, conscious assistance? I concern myself self with my plots, but I let my subconscious worry about my themes, says Tim Powers. Um, and you reside in Southern California with, the, with your wife, Serena, the, the wonderful Serena. Um, so uh, out now at Booksellers Everywhere is Forced Perspectives, um, in hardcover and uh, in ebook form. Um, what uh, this is related to alternate routes, or as Yankees might say, alternate routes. Yeah, um, the two characters from alternate routes at the end had dealt with <clears throat> their difficulties, um, but were left with a certain disjointed. Uh, relationship with time because of what happened to them in alternate routes. They don't exist exclusively in the moment of now. They slightly overlap the past and so they're able to uh, sort of concentrate and look past what they are immediately seeing. Sort of the way you would look at those uh, pictures that were popular a few years ago, a bunch of just sort of uh, confetti dots. But if you focus right, you'd see a motorcycle or a shark in them. I forget what those were called. Mm -hmm. I was I was never able to see it's anything in them. Tessellation, uh, exactly, is something else. But, uh, yeah. yeah. And so our characters um, are now able to sort of look through the moment of now and see their surroundings as they were, say, an hour or two ago. And uh, Alternate Roots ends with them simply noting that they now have this ability. And Forced Perspectives um, 
brings a problem to them. They're now separate. Uh, Vickery is living in Southern California, and Castine is back at her job on the East Coast. But both of them become aware that instead of being able to see the recent past now, instead they exclusively see a certain decrepit, ruined old house. And... uh, each successive time they see it, their viewpoint is closer to it, and they begin to see a person in the house. And all they can conclude is that this is some scene from the past, and various parallel developments indicate that this is bad news, that uh, this is leading towards some culmination of bad things that went on in L.A. and Hollywood in the 1960s during the bad, oh, uh, the bad times that sort of culminated with Charles Manson and various Satanist activities. What is, um, all right, so in alternate routes, we we are introduced to this L.A. um, of yours, where you live, (laughs) and uh, in real life. Um, and and it's kind of uh, it's full of these ghosts, um, and they're created in alternate routes by the uh, sort of resonance of cars passing station. I don't know the. Explain how uh, the ghosts work. Maybe yeah. yeah um, well, it occurred to me that um, a free will, any individual free will, which is to say a human being, uh, is a violation of natural deterministic law. I mean, atoms have to go where Newton or Niels Bohr say they have to go, but if the atoms are part of a human being's hand, they will instead go to reach for either a beer or a Coke, uh, depending on the free will of the person. And so given that, in effect, every little pocket of free will, which is to say every person, is a moving violation of natural law, it occurred to me that if you have a bunch of them moving past a stationary one, you have something parallel to uh, electrons moving past stationary electrons, like Faraday spinning a magnet inside a coil of copper wire, which generates an electromagnetic field which, you know, extends, it diminishes as the square of the distance, but it extends powerfully for some distance around it. And I thought, okay, well, if these three wills moving are likewise uh, generating a field, what kind of field would you like it to be? And I thought, well, if it's a violation of nature, it must be supernatural. And therefore, of course, Uh, things which are impossible according to strict uh, cause and effect logic would be possible in this field. And therefore, ghosts manifest. I mean, it stands to reason, right? Uh, And so... Absolutely. Yeah, of course. Ergo. (laughs) Yeah, ergo, exactly. So around freeways, there is uh, this field generated, and most people aren't aware of it, but there's a kind of subculture of freeway gypsies who set up little nests in the freeway shoulder greenery 
and can consult ghosts. And this, of course, leads to all kinds of uh, complications and problems. What? All right, so ghosts are not the souls of people in this in this sense, right? There's something different and a little less... Yeah, I posit, actually I got the idea from G.K. Chesterton, that um, in the stress of dying, uh, when the body collapses inert and the soul goes away to the Elysian fields or Valhalla or heaven or hell or wherever, um, our fragments are flung off from this stressful event and uh, they consist of kind of animate cast-off snake skins, uh, a kind of semi-sentient replica of the original person working on a, like, 40 IQ, uh, which thinks it's the original person and has uh, most of the memories of the original person, but is, in fact... uh, an ephemeral, temporary, uh, peripheral effect. Um, but while it's present, you can talk to it after a fashion, though it's not very bright, can't hold its attention, very no attention span to speak of. And, of course, it's kind of traumatic if it's the ghost of someone you love because it's this kind of, mockery almost, this kind of um, uh, pointless reminder of the original person, and you kind of feel bad if you're interrogating it. Um, So it's an emotionally dubious sort of situation. Yeah. So you have that, and and what we, who we met in uh, alternate routes, and... um are our main characters in Force Perspective, who are Sebastian Vickery and Ingrid Castine. And, and Santiago carries over as well, right? Um, who, how did they have to do with Ghost? And how, what, where are they at the beginning of Force Perspective? Well, at the beginning of Force Perspectives, uh, Castine, after about a year of uh, not seeing Vickery, uses... Uh, a signal they agreed on in the previous book to meet. And uh, Vickery is very cautious about going to the meeting place at the prescribed time um, because he has noticed uh, evidence of somebody monitoring him and and, uh, following him. And so he uh, is not certain that Castine has been as careful as he has been to avoid surveillance. Um, but they get together and immediately find that, in fact, uh, Castine has inadvertently led the mysterious powers to them, and they find they have to take off running and figure out what it is that this mysterious power wants with them. Um, and they do wind up uh, meeting again Santiago, the uh, fugitive Mexican boy who by this time is about 12, and he functions as kind of an artful Dodger character. Um, 
makes a living by sort of watching and carrying messages among the semi-occult subcultures of Los Angeles. And he finds himself, too, uh, involved in this big project, uh, which is being furthered by a kind of, turns out, kind of renegade, semi-crazy, computer genius, fugitive from Silicon Valley. Who's dabbling in things that he ought not to dabble in. He is, in fact, doing that. Yeah, he... Uh, he has uh, got hold of a variant Egyptian hieroglyph, which people have been trying to suppress for centuries. Um, and uh, he's using it to ideally create a kind of what, what's known as an egregore, uh, big news in occult circles to this day. Uh, which is so that's a that's a uh, real word. That's it's been, a real word out yeah. there. It's yeah. Everybody, uh, uh, Aleister Crowley and all that crowd were messing with it. And the idea is that if you get a group of people together and in resonance, uh, a thing can manifest an intelligence, an entity, which is a sort of. Uh, buds off from them, becomes an independent uh, entity, thing, intelligence. And um, it then can use that original crowd of people who generated it as its fingers and uh, manipulative tools. And uh, our Silicon Valley fugitive considers this a good thing and is working to incorporate uh, ideally the whole world, but certainly as many people as he can. And he finds that he needs this overmind thing, uh, needs the equivalent of the thalamus humans have in their brains, which is kind of equivalent to, in some ways, a computer's router. Ha, I could go on at length. Um, and it needs to be two people with a very special relationship with linear time. In effect, kind of a, a freedom from the restrictions of linear time. And our two pro poor protagonists turn out to qualify, and he wants to incorporate them forcibly into his projected overmind, uh, but it's it's costly and not what they would like to participate in, and uh, so there's conflict there. Yeah, well, they don't. They're um, the reason that they can do this is because they basically crossed over into this sort of uh, the shadow labyrinth uh, world in. Um, in alternate routes, which I mean, it's not, it's not really the afterlife, but it's kind of the ghost afterlife. And, and then they managed to get back. Yeah. So they, and they crossing are... over and coming back, crossing over into a virtual afterlife and, and then coming back to the real world has left them, uh, not firmly moored in their, uh, their little, uh, sockets of, 
sequential time. They rattle a little in the sockets now. They, they're not a comfortable fit anymore, which does give them uh, their ability to see the recent past of wherever they are and qualifies them for this egregore entity. Um, yeah. It's also the reason they're, they're having this vision of the, uh, the old Victorian mansion in the valley. Right, right. It turns out that that old Victorian mansion, which was in fact torn down in 1969, uh, they're seeing it as it was in 1968 when some very heavy occult stuff happened there, and they're finding themselves involved in somebody trying to do it again. And um, yeah. so they find themselves having well, to find out what exactly did happen in 1968 there. Well, let's, let's touch on that um, without giving too much away. But um, can you tell... We haven't really talked about the characters of uh, Sebastian and or Vickery and um, and casting, and they're really capable. Vickery's ex-cop, um, I think she is too, right? So th- these are not people to mess with if you happen to be a a billionaire trying to <laughs> trying to kill them. Yeah, uh, Vickery uh, had been uh, L.A. cop and then uh, joined subsequently uh, the Secret Service. Um, but then had to flee after he inadvertently uh, eavesdropped on a very secret occult project of the government and uh, has been living kind of under the radar for the last uh, six or eight years. And Castine had been an agent with that sort of splinter Secret Service group. And she by preventing Vickery from being captured and quietly executed, um, found herself uh, on the bad list of that secret government agency and found herself having to um, work under the radar. And so, yeah, both of them uh, have in their past a pretty extensive uh, training, which they, of course, now find useful in these kind of uh, uh, outside-the-border-of-normal-life adventures. And they're not, um, they're not uh, together uh, romantically. They are, but they're friends. And they're always kind of... Uh, Careful friends. Kind of They're always scully kind of. Yeah. Uh, in fact, um, when I originally decided that they should not be romantically involved, though there's always kind of the nebulous possibility of it in the future, um, I kind of was thinking of Modesty Blaze and Willie Garvin um, from those books by Peter O'Donnell, mm-hmm. uh, where there's there's always a kind of you're always very aware that Modesty and Willie are very closely involved in appalling adventures, but they they never do step over the line into an actual romantic relationship. Uh, and the, so there's always kind of a, 
like the story is the spark between the two electrodes. The the, the intrigue is in the gap. So the um, so we have some appealing heroes here, and um, what is uh, start? Maybe we should go back to Cecil B. DeMille, or even beyond that to ancient Egypt, and and talk a little bit about uh, this Ba. Um, enough so that we can get an idea of what the story is. Well, um, in Egyptian mythology, there are two sort of core gods. You could almost call them two poles. And uh, they're so basic that they aren't really so much gods in the sense of personalities with goals and... uh, allies, um, they're kind of bases of simple existence. Ba is the potential for souls to exist, Uh, like a a carrier wave is a potential for a radio signal to be transmitted. Uh, It's not a personality in itself. It's simply uh, the ground from which personalities can occur. And new, the contrary of Ba, is kind of the eternal identity sink in which uh, identities uh, and awarenesses can be negated. It's kind of the ultimate negation of everything. And so they're kind of uh, complementary opposites. And uh, they have their respective hieroglyphs. And um, for the story, I posit that the hieroglyphs of Ba and Nu that you'll find in textbooks of Egyptian mythology are slightly inaccurate. Uh, You can open a textbook and gaze steadily at, say, the Ba hieroglyph and not have any effects. But if you could get hold of the original one, of which those textbook ones are distortions, you would have uh, some psychic consequences of looking steadily at it. You would, in fact, invoke it. And so somebody, a sort of uh, amateur Egyptologist, occultist, secretly put a copy of the original bomb uh, hieroglyph on one of the walls of Cecil B. DeMille's Pharaoh's Palace set when DeMille was filming the Ten Commandments. And DeMille became aware of this and didn't want this potent, dangerous hieroglyph uh, to appear in his movie or, in fact, to remain on the set uh, and possibly have bad consequences for people later. And so when he was finished filming the movie, and this is all true, at least what I'm about to say, he dug a giant trench and got bulldozers and pushed the entire set into this trench and buried it. And uh, in fact, today, archaeologists at the Guadalupe Dunes, north of Santa Barbara, where DeMille filmed, they're digging up that set and resurrecting sphinxes and things from the DeMille movie. Uh, 
but in my story, uh, that seems dangerous after I've read, <laughs> having read forced perspectives. <laughs> yeah, they've got to be careful. Um, but in my book, the hieroglyph is in fact retrieved and, uh, comes into the possession of a satanic biker club in the late sixties, which there were a whole lot of satanic biker clubs in the LA area then. How, Tim, just how the hell do you come do you find out about the this this under uh, under street history of of L? Is it just a passion of yours? I suppose, sure. Um, I mean, it's an interesting thing. Uh, one beautiful source is uh, Ed Sanders' book called The Family, in which he talks not so much about the Manson family themselves as the environment of Los Angeles and Hollywood in the late 60s that kind of uh, uh, sprouted the Manson phenomenon. And there's, uh, yeah, weird sects and cults and uh, biker gangs and uh, uh, indie movies, and uh, it's just a festering swamp of... uh, what, among other things, is beautiful material to base a book on. <laughs> yeah. So there's the Gardena Satanic Motorcycle Club, and they got in hold of this sigil. Right. And and they use it to maintain the entirety of their club membership, even including members who have died. Uh, it's sort of one for all and all for one, including dead members, which is possible if you have the Ba hieroglyph to sort of sustain the ghosts of the bikers who have been killed. And they resent it when um, a sort of crazy hippie fugitive from the Laurel Canyon culture, which was Frank Zappa and... Mama Cass Elliot and all them, he steals the sigil from the biker gang and wants to use it for his own purposes. And so there's bad feelings there back in 1968, which in fact have resonances today. So what this thing can do is allow, if if you do the ritual right, you can make an egregore. Yeah, yeah. You'll find yourself. Yeah, you'll find yourself if you stare fixedly at the Ba hieroglyph. You'll find that you have your mentally established a link with all the other people who have stared fixedly at it as well. Uh, it's kind of a doorway into um, an increasingly crowded chamber, and. Uh, of course, in order to trick people into staring fixedly at it for several minutes, um, the bad guys have printed it as uh, a page of a coloring book. And on the theory that in order to color in all the little spaces, it'll be required that you do, in fact, stare fixedly at the thing for several minutes and inadvertently trigger the effect, which is actually very clever, I think. Uh, that was clever of the characters to think of making it a coloring book page. 
so who are the the what will they gain from doing this and and, and is there a power to this thing and um what who are they uh, other than Harlow uh yeah yeah what what the bad guys see as attractive in becoming a part of this thing is uh virtual immortality you become a part of this big entity which is independent of the physical bodies of its members and so you're freed from the necessity of uh being in one place at one time uh having to spend a third of your life asleep um having to eat uh the little peripheral bodies will take care of that sustenance type work and as the egregore gets bigger and incorporates more people uh, those little physical bodies that are sustaining the thing can be allowed to die, starve, uh, you know, uh, deteriorate, because you're always incorporating more. It's sort of the way a human body discards blood cells regularly, um, because there's always more being made. Uh, and so the attractiveness is you get to ditch your personal physical concerns and also your personal physical guilt, ignorances, uh, limitations. Um, you get to share the enormous collective IQ of the egregore and its innocence, your individual guilts and fears and personal shortcomings are left behind. You get to sort of be part of a clean slate. And if you've led a very discreditable, disgraceful life, this is an attractive prospect. So in a way, it's if you are, for instance, afraid of dying and going to hell, it's a way to at least put that off forever or <laughs> to get out of it, to get out of hell free. They kind of suspect that there may be something to the idea of karma, sin, uh, retribution, judgment. Vaguely, they suspect there may actually be something like that after you die. Uh, and that's a troublesome thought if you, in fact, have a whole lot of uh, bad actions in your past. And uh, so, yeah, joining this thing would be a way to evade that uh, distasteful eventuality. Yeah. Well, tell us about some of the, uh, this sort of, uh, this sort of constellation of, of on the, the bad guy side, as it were, the uh, Rogatsky, Agnes Loria, and these, these crazy twins who are very fascinating characters to me. Yeah, uh, well, Rogotsky is a young man who joined the thing on kind of a philosophical basis. Uh, but when he meets uh, Agnes Loria and uh, recruits her into it, he, uh, to his dismay, falls in love with her and uh, therefore reconsiders the attractiveness of uh, losing his individual self and even worse, seeing her lose her individual self. And so um, he's now kind of uh, 
reluctant player in the whole egregore scheme. Agnes, on the other hand, thinks it's great. She looks forward to losing herself and incidentally losing her affection for poor Rogowski. So uh, Rogowski finds himself allying with um, Vickery and Castine in an attempt to stop the whole egregore thing and therefore stop Agnes from being able to lose herself which Rogotsky finds very attractive. He likes herself. He doesn't want it dissolved into a bigger thing. Um, and uh, let's see, who else was there? There's uh, Well, there's uh, Amanda and Lexi. Uh, oh, yeah, the twins, right. Yeah, uh, the twins um, are, are bad guys' nieces, and um, our bad guy manages to incorporate them, and they already were, uh, what, suffered from uh, sort of dissociative symptoms. But when they are exposed to the uh, fracturing hieroglyph, um, they get to the point where they are not any longer distinct individuals they fall in and out of each other's minds they uh they don't think of themselves as i and you or when they do it 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 varies uh, they're not sure which of themselves they are and um this makes them very handy as a backup thalamus for um our main bad guy, Simon Harlow, uh, if it doesn't work out with Vickery and Castine, he can always use the twins as a thalamus, though they're definitely second best because they're completely erratic and unpredictable and um, kind of uh, contrary, kind of perverse, kind of uh, resistant to instruction. Um, and so it was, it was nice to get these two blameless little girls involved in this bad scheme and, um, not to give it away, but they turn out okay. And there is, uh, our Egyptian secret agent, Latif Fakuri. Yeah. Well, he uh, was a minor clerk with the Egyptian intelligence agency, uh, which was entirely remade after a revolution in 2011, as I recall. But he finds some records of the previous uh, disbanded intelligence service, which uh, have to do with that 1968 attempt to use the Ba hieroglyph which the agent in 1968 thought had been closed, finished, ended. But uh, Fakuri finds evidence that, in fact, new coloring books are being printed, and it looks like the thing is being attempted again. And he finds himself kind of duty-bound to get himself assigned to the King Tut exhibit in Los Angeles, as cover so that he can covertly uh, do his best to prevent the Baha'i from being um, 
sacrilegiously used to make this very non-Egyptian egregore. And so even though he's not yeah, really qualified... Kind of yeah, go ahead. Well, even though he's not really qualified to do, you know, undercover secret service type work, he finds himself having to, in effect, be a one-man representative of Egypt and um, prevent the sacrilegious misuse of this sacred Egyptian symbol. Yeah, and he is... Um, he. He's a, he's a very fun, uh, mysterious figure that um, that that we slowly learn what what he's about. He kind of stumbles and uh, misunderstands and uh, getting himself way too deeply involved than more than he's comfortable with. He's always dismayed at having to get involved in these things uh, and doesn't really totally appreciate the help he's getting from Vickery and Castine. Both parties wish the other party was not involved. Uh, and so that he, yeah, he kind of goes stumbling through kind of a, uh, I don't want to say Oliver Hardy figure, but um, kind of clumsily doing his best. Yeah, well, he seems like a a fun noir kind of character. I mean, the the mysterious Egyptian keeps showing up, <laughs> and uh... yeah, and of course what? the L.A. occult culture subculture uh, notes his fleeting appearances uh, because, of course, there had been an Egyptian involved fifty years earlier in 1968, and they think. Uh, oh no, Egyptian interference again because in 68 it had been that uh, agent of the previous Egyptian secret service yeah, he's following that guy is a spiritual mentor at least, I don't think he ever met him, but right yes, yes, he he uh, he wants to rescue the twins uh, Lexi and Amber because he sees them as parallel to a couple of girls he saw many years earlier in, uh, I don't remember the name of the Egyptian suburb, the Cairo suburb, but it's the garbage city. It's the city where all of Egypt's, uh, Cairo's garbage is collected and sorted and you might say recycled. And he failed to rescue two girls he saw years ago and kind of feels that if he can rescue Lexi and Amber, it will, to some degree, redeem that uh, failure years ago. Mm-hmm. Well, the bad thing about the reason that Vickery and Castine are trying to prevent this, and and is and he sort of provides some of the the background on this, is that the Baigregor is going to result in death. <laughs> it's not a good thing. To, to have happen, uh, much like many socialist schemes. Never mind, I didn't say that, sorry. <laughs> the, uh, this group mind is not a good thing. Yeah. Yeah, so. yeah. and the uh, the people who like it like it because they get to subsume individuals who ultimately don't matter into the big controlling group, which is all that does matter. 
Yeah. And I really like the, the, that you brought in that dancing plague, uh, the mania from, because it's come up recently with talking about the, you know, the, the latest coronavirus stuff that we're in the midst of as we record this. Yeah, that's right. We are in the midst of it. Yeah, as a, as a mania that afflicted uh, like villages. Yeah, uh, which of course is still mysterious. Nobody to this day knows why the dancing madness happened in uh, the Middle Ages. And of course, the natural parallel that occurs to one is uh, the story of the Pied Piper of Hamelin. Um, so I figured. Uh, yeah, again, ergo, um, it, it must be that uh, the dancing madnesses uh, incidents in Europe were evidences of failed egregores. When you get all the group minds together and the thing doesn't spark, like cranking a car's engine but the engine won't turn over, the consequence is that the people you've incorporated uh, to an extent simply go crazy. There's no overmind that was created to govern them and so they're left with a, a vacuum where there should have been a mind and they just go dancing away into the landscape. And dance till they die. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. God knows what was going on Which is, actually in the Middle Ages with that. <laughs> so uh, what else should, could we say about forced perspectives that we might want to bring up? I guess one of the things, the ghost can get you with a big old tongue that you've posited that kind of freezes you. Yeah. Um, it's ectoplasmic, basically. Um, they can... They can sort of force a contact with you, force an overlap, and they do it by extruding their tongues like uh, chameleons or something. Well, they, they, they force an overlap briefly, and in that overlap, if you're not careful, they can jump across and at least briefly exchange personalities with you so that they are, at least for a moment, inhabiting your physical body while you, for a moment, are the ephemeral ghost trying to figure out how to fix this with the ghost's 40 IQ. Um, very dangerous, and luckily uh, there are ways to break the connection. Um, but, yeah, the, the La Brea Tar Pits um, strikes me as a very obvious, again, ergo, um, way to avoid, to be able to die without having a ghost of yourself wandering around and possibly being used by people for uh, bad purposes. Um, somebody mentions that mummies were um, part of the dressing mummies got was uh, creosote, which is a derivative of tar. And uh, tar kind of can insulate your substance so that any ghosts that can get thrown off in your death stay under the tar. And so, of course, uh, at one point it becomes imperative that they interview uh, a dead person whose ghost is preserved in the tar. And uh, it's a very 
colorful, dangerous, uh, disquieting, spectacular, upsetting uh, ordeal to summon somebody out of the tar pits. And, of course, you're going to wind up summoning other things that died in the tar pits inadvertently as you're trying to sort through and find the guy you're after. It was fun using the tar pits because you do really get, as the characters get, an impression that amidst 21st century bustling Los Angeles, here is a pocket of timelessness, uh, Paleolithic and Jurassic and every other Carboniferous uh, era is, in a sense, present here. Um, it's like L.A. is surface, but this is very deep time. Yeah. You just, I mean, you have used so much of the weirdness of L.A. Um, in, in your work that uh, I guess you probably can't run out, though, right? <laughs> The nice thing about L.A. is, you know, people see it, they arrive at LAX, they go to their hotel, they walk up and down Hollywood Boulevard, uh, and they go home and they think, it's all just tinsel, it's all just facade, uh, veneer. Um, but if you stop and kind of walk down an alley or drive up into the hills, uh, it's just teeming with odd bits of peculiar history, which are still vibrating in place. Um, there's strange eastern temples in valleys up in the hills that you'd swear you can only get to by covert stairways. I mean, I've looked at some of these valleys, and there's monks in robes in these odd domed temples, and you think, there's no road into here. Ha! Ah. I think they can only get in and out by this stairway. Um, and odd history. Uh, you look at an ordinary old house at the top of a hill, but if you read up on it, you think that is the very house where, and then you can finish that sentence almost any way you want. Um, and it's all under semi-tropical sunlight, palm trees, uh unlike the kind of gothic atmosphere you think of in uh, European stories of haunted London or Prague or Paris, uh, this is bright sunlight, uh, you know, loud contemporary music, uh, but with the weird old Hispanic cinematic uh, weird Eastern cults, uh, all that stuff kind of bubbling right under the surface. Well, it's great stuff when you when you write about it. Um, what are you working on now? Actually, I'm writing uh, a third Victory and Castine novel. Um, let's see. Uh, at the end of um, uh, Forced Perspectives, uh, Vickery has adopted the persona just as a cover of a UFO fanatic uh, to explain his frequent trips into the Mojave Desert. He 
kind of drops hints that he's uh, interested in the Roswell flying saucer and stuff like that, which in fact, of course he's not. Um, but in this newest book, it turns out that he, uh, inadvertently stumbled across some people in the UFO fan crowd who had histories at area 51 and fled. And, uh, he has, uh, totally unwittingly, um, become party to some information that the government does not want anyone to have. And, um, Castine, of course, working for uh, naval intelligence when we last see her in forced perspectives, finds herself assigned to find this Vickery character and identify him for the intelligence community. And she's assigned a partner to make sure she doesn't... uh, renege and uh, disregard her assignment. Well, you have him out in Barstow. Is, is it a California story still? Oh, it's it? California, yeah. Uh, yeah. Uh, uh, in fact, the flying saucer culture, subculture, has its own landmarks, uh, you know, uh, important uh, places, uh, one of which happens to involve the new, relatively new, the last 20 or 30 years, uh, Catholic Cathedral in downtown Los Angeles. Turns out they built it on the very wrong place. (laughs) Well, I can't wait for that. and uh, but currently out at bookstores everywhere, at booksellers everywhere, is uh, Force Perspectives by Tim Powers. Um, Tim, thank you so much for talking with us about the book. It's got a beautiful cover, doesn't it? I think it's the Adam Byrne cover. Yeah, that's a gorgeous cover. I love it. Very mysterious, ominous. Well, thank you so much, Tim. I appreciate it very much. Oh, no trouble. Uh, happy to do it. And we also have the complete audio presentation of an excellent epic military fantasy short story by legendary writer and bladesmith Hank Reinhardt. It's called The Age of the Warrior. The Age of the Warrior by Hank Reinhardt Read by Jeff Aguiar The chatter and gaiety of the feast had been stilled, and although the candles still burned brightly, fear and apprehension darkened the great hall of Castle Glown. Rank was forgotten as lord and lady, townsmen and guardsmen mingled in small, quiet clusters. The low murmur of their voices would still as the door to the ducal chambers opened, but picked up as soon as only a serving-man or maid appeared. The evening had started out well enough. Lyof II, King of Livane, accompanied by his retinue and the Duke of Jagai, had arrived earlier in the day. 
the Duke of Glown, had been well prepared for his royal guests, and the feast he had served was splendid. The recent treaty between King Lyof II and Tagai, King of the Shang, was an event to be well remembered, and the Duke had spared no expenses to celebrate it. It was right after an impromptu wrestling match, won by Asgalt, Duke of Jagai, against a young guardsman that the blow fell. A messenger arrived bearing the ill news that the Shang had invested Castle Kells, and it looked as if the castle would fall within a few days. Pandemonium broke loose, and the king with his closest advisers retired to the private chambers of the Duke of Glown. In the chambers the king sat hunched over a table, poring over a map as if seeking to change the very lay of the land with his thoughts. Around the table stood several of his ministers, while in the corner the two dukes engaged in a heated argument. The king glanced with annoyance at the two men, and with a tone of less than regal forbearance snarled, "'Will you two stop that damned bickering and get over here? The whole kingdom is threatened, and you two argue over propriety?' Asgalt, about to make a point, stopped in mid-sentence and looked at the king. "'Sire, I do not argue. I merely defend myself.' The Duke of Glown, Colwyn by name, bowed from the waist and answered, "'Your pardon, sire, but I feel that it is unseemly for a duke of the realm to wrestle a common guardsman, even if the man is a champion.' Asgalt grunted in disgust. "'Bah! You only object because I win.' Lyolf glared at the two, then in his most kingly voice, we do not care about wrestling or the proprieties. We do care about advice. Colwyn, Duke of Glown, walked over with dignity and stationed himself behind the king. He was a tall man, with hair as white as snow, and a face lined with years of care and worry. However, the Duke of Jagai merely ambled over to the front of the king and stood looking down at him. He saw a man full-grown, calm and stern, well suited to rule, but in his mind's eye he also saw a young boy gawping up at him in awe and wonder. Asgalt pointed to the map. Look, you can see what has to be done, or at least tried. The king shook his head. I said no. Asgalt slapped his thighs with anger. He was a large man with cold blue eyes shaded by iron-gray hair thick-necked, running into massive shoulders and chest with arms to match. Only the iron-gray of his hair and the thickening midsection betrayed his age. He turned away, then turned back again. You young puppy! Were you not a man grown, I'd shake some sense into you, king or no. By Kimwalt's eyes, all you have to do is look. The ministers glanced at each other in embarrassed silence, but the Duke of Glown spoke up in shocked reprimand. "'Your Grace, you can't speak to the king like that. It isn't proper.' Asgalt swelled and roared. "'Proper! Proper! With Shang soon to be riding through every hamlet, butchering and pillaging till their black hearts content, and you say, proper?' He shook his head in wonder, then continued in the same roaring voice. "'Colwyn, you were one of the best fighting men I have ever seen, but—' His voice trailed, and he spoke to the king in a lower voice. Do you remember when Colwind and I held the breach during the siege of this castle? Fifteen years ago it was. 
and he wanted me to stand to the left rear as he was borne to the ducal chair. The king, despite his woes, grinned. He had heard this story at least once a month for the past fifteen years. But then reality returned, and his face tightened. Enough of this! Tagai has broken the treaty. The Shang are marching, and the kingdom has to be warned and the levy raised. I don't have time to sit and listen to your constant bickering. Asgalt nodded, dropped his pretended fury, and spoke seriously. No, you don't. Nor do you have time to send a messenger the long way around the Blue Mountains. The Shang are already at Kells, and before you could move the long way around, they will be here, and the main army will be moving. Before the levy is raised, Levain will be open. He continued, The only way to better the time is over the pass of Jagai. Once through, and the Shang can be avoided by a good man, the levy can be raised by the time the Shang reach here. We could easily catch them here, and there's only one man who knows the pass. Me. Lyov sat and never spoke. All there knew his concern. Asgalt had been a close friend and adviser to his father. Indeed, he was responsible for his father gaining back the throne after the rebellion. But Asgalt had aged, and the journey he spoke of so easily was hard on even a much younger man and the Shang were out in force. In the end it was Colwyn who forced the issue. Sire, the Duke is right. It is the only chance that we have. The course of action is plain. You leave at once taking the long road, and Asgold leaves for the pass. Lyoth nodded in final agreement. He looked at Asgold, and his face softened. Have a care, old warrior. Remember that a young king still needs old friends. The duke grinned back at him, and for a moment his hard, craggy face looked boyish. Old? Ask that young guardsman. He thought I was old, but his back and shoulder will tell him different this night. Then take him with you. He looked tough as boot leather. Asgalt ruefully answered, He is. The morning sun had not yet risen as the king and Duke Glaun watched Asgalt and Flan ride from the castle. The king shook his head in fear and spoke to his companion. "'Tis a fear, good duke, that we may not see Asgalt again. Strange that yet again the fate of this land rests on the shoulders of an outlander." Colwyn nodded his agreement. "'There are no stronger ones for it to rest on,' he paused then continued. He seemed more than merely eager to go. Is it that he fears his age, or is it his hatred for the Shang? The morning fog had lifted, and now the sun shone warm. They rode at a steady pace, rarely speaking, each in his own thoughts. At noon they dismounted for a quick meal and to walk the horses. Flan, the guardsman, was a tall youth, wide and rangy in appearance, with jet-black hair and matching eyes. He looked at the duke, then spoke. "'Tell me, your grace, how is it that a chief of the Hagahai becomes a duke of Levain?' "'That lad would take some telling. I'm not a Hagahai, 
but a Brakeet. I joined one of their raiding parties to settle a personal score against the Shang. Well, one thing led to another, and I ended up as chief. It was a good life. All the Haga'ai want to do is drink and fight. I'd probably be there still, but a Shang raiding party hit us one night. They killed everyone but me. They planned on strangling me, then stuffing the carcass. He chuckled. That was a mistake. I broke loose. Killed a few more. I wandered a few years and ended up in Livane, serving in the army. It was at Iron Mountain that I met old Lyulf. The line broke, and it was clear that the rebels were winning, so when the whole army broke and ran, I tried to stay alive. A couple of days later, I came on a man trying to fight four of the rebels and protect a boy. I killed the rebels, and the man followed me. He laughed outright. It was a damn month before I found out it was the king. Old Lyulf was a cagey devil. His mind drifted back over the years, and he spoke in a low reverie, forgetting he had an audience talking more to himself than to Flan. Five years we wandered and fought, hiding out in hills and caves and with a few loyal to the crown. Finally we had an army, and we caught Morgong at Whitewater Flats. What a battle that was! <laughs> I killed Morgon. Damn, we'll cut him near in half. But enough of me. How is it that a man of Livale ends up in Livane? Flan smiled. Not much to tell, Your Grace. The wanderlust that hits many a young son of a poor farmer. I roamed a while, tried the sea, but my stomach didn't care for it. I fought with Lord Conlanac was with him at Colnar Ridge, got away, wandered a bit more, then ended up in Glown. The Duke hired me. He then added with a smile. He was impressed with my wrestling. Asgot laughed, a full-throated bellow. I knew that old devil was trying to set me up, and he damn near did. You almost had me, but I tricked you. You wrestle well. All you lack is age and experience. Next time, Your Grace, I'll try not to be tricked. They continued on, and soon the land began to change. The rolling hills gave way to open woodland, and this in turn to lowlands with rich and fertile valleys. This was beautiful land, but now the beauty was marred by signs of war. Burnt farms, scattered livestock, and whole villages put to the sword. The occasional stink of death they encountered as they passed a burnt-out steading soon gave way to a horrible stench that filled the air and seemed to get into their very pores. Death was all about them. Asgalt reined in his mount. Now tis time to arm. Shang are all about, and we'd best keep a sharp eye. Quickly they stripped the pack-pony and each donned his mail shirt, steel helmet, and slipped their shields onto their backs. Their spears they set horizontally, so that they wouldn't project upward and give warning of their presence. The duke cut the pack pony loose and sent it running with a slap on the rump. From here, it's two days' ride, then a climb up the mountain, across the bridge, and it's over with. All we need to do now is avoid the shang. The stench grew worse as they neared the outskirts of a small village. 
They passed death in its most grotesque forms, bodies lying with complete abandonment, bloated bellies thrusting at the sun. Neither spoke. Flan, with grim indifference, passed the scene. But Asgald's face grew flint-hard, and no expression crossed it. As they neared the crest of a small hill, they could hear the sounds of battle on the other side, screams and curses and yells of agony. Quickly they reined in and slipped from their horses, crawling stealthily to the top of the hill. The last act was played as they watched. One man still stood, jabbing feebly at the circling Shang warriors. At his feet lay a young girl, wide-eyed with terror. A warrior casually parried the spear, then slashed downward and the man fell, blood spurting high in the air from a severed neck artery. The Shang circled the girl, making false attempts to grab her and laughing at her frantic movements. Flan started to rise, but Asgalt pulled him down. He turned angrily. Why? There are only five and we can hit them before they know what's happening. Asgalt pointed to his left. In the distance, a large party of mounted men could be seen. I feel as you do, but I have a kingdom to worry about. If we're caught, it could happen to the whole land. The girl's screams caused them to look up. The Shang were now close about her, poking with their spears. Suddenly, Asgalt stood up, and now his fury was real. He reached down and dragged the startled Flan to his feet with one hand. Kimwald's balls! The day I can't kill five and outright a hundred, the kingdom can fall! Ride, damn you! Ride! Grab the girl and ride! The Shang were still laughing and jabbing at the girl when the two hit them. The first died, never knowing what the strange pointed thing was that suddenly grew from his chest. The second turned, saw a flash, then nothingness engulfed him. The third screamed, parried a slashing sword, then had his neck broken by the edge of a shield. The fourth saw only a gray-haired demon suddenly appear and kill three of his companions when a sword lashed out and cut deep into his side. He looked up in bewilderment, saw a pair of jet-black eyes, then life left him. The fifth almost made it, turning and galloping for the body of men in the distance. He fled for his life, but Asgold wanted it also, and his sword took the man cleanly at the juncture of neck and shoulder. Asgold reined in the Shang horse and led it back to Flan and the girl. Mount up and ride. They've seen us. He nodded over his shoulder. Into the hills. We can cut over and hit the main trail by tomorrow. The night was cold and Asgalt cursed the Shang, the damp and the very small fire. He was tired. The ride had been long and hard, but so far they had outdistanced the Shang. He looked at the two across the fire from him. The girl and Flan huddled close under a cloak and Flan obviously enjoying it. The girl, Aethne, a baker's daughter, had been visiting an uncle when the Shang attacked. She had fled with several others, only to be caught out in the open. The girl shivered under the blanket and asked, Do you think we've gotten away? Flan shrugged. Ask the Duke. I've never even seen Shang until today. The Duke? And her eyes grew wide. Your Grace! And she made a motion as if to rise. Stay seated, girl. It's too cold and late for such nonsense. Asgalt warmed his hands on the small blaze. No, one thing you can say for the Shang, they never quit. I'm surprised that that one tried to run away. 
Never saw one break and run before. They're out there. My fear is that they know where we're headed. Flan snuggled the girl closer and asked, Why? And what is this pass of Jagai that we're headed to? It's a pass up the mountain. No one knew of it until old Lyolf and I stumbled on it. The Shan can't use it as their cavalry, and no way you can get horses up it. We got to the top, then found there was a damn deep gorge. All the way to the bottom of the mountain it falls. I managed to get across it. That is how we got back into Livane after the rebellion. Later we built a bridge. Once across, we're in Jagai. I keep a way station about three miles down the mountain, so it'll be an easy walk and an easy ride to Jagai Castle. If they realize that's where we're headed, they'll have the whole army trying to stop us. Once we get across, the army can be raised and the whole attack is ruined. Asgalt looked longingly at the fire, wishing it were larger, then doused it. Now get some sleep. Tomorrow's going to be a bad day. Dawn broke, cold and clear, and when Asgalt awoke, Flan and the girl had already made another small fire. He was stiff, and his back hurt. Damn ill-trained horse, he muttered as he tried to stretch himself into some semblance of a man rather than an aching mass of bones. He was peeved that they had awakened before he did. Usually he awoke first and fully alert, but now he felt that he needed more hours of sleep. He was groggy and only half awake as he munched his meager breakfast. They mounted and began a slow, tiring ride up the hill. The terrain was rocky, with little clefts and culverts down a short, steep incline, then up a longer, steeper one. But slowly they climbed higher and higher. They rounded a bad bend, and the mountain loomed forbiddingly over them. They paused to rest the horses, and Asgalt was quite pleased when Flan suggested it. While the horses drank from a small mountain stream, the duke looked back down the trail. Flan, come take a look. I can't make out anything, but do you see something? Seems to be some movement. Flan shaded his eyes. Shang, a large party. Anywhere from fifty to a hundred. They know. Best get moving. They camped that night under an overhanging rock. Not having planned on the girl, they found their supplies were quickly giving out. The Shang horse had had no food bag. It seemed to Asgolt that he had just fallen asleep when Aethne was shaking him. Your grace, time to be moving. The Shang followed into the night. Asgolt rose quickly and his body protested. Pain shot through his back, and his elbows and shoulders felt as if they were locked in irons. What? How do you know? Flan spoke quietly. I awoke early, slipped down the trail, saw them. They gained quite a bit on us. The duke nodded. Let the horse go. From here on up we have to climb. One more day, then we can be over the bridge by mid-morning of the next. Flan discarded his armor and shield, keeping only his sword and spear. He suggested that Asgalt do the same, but the duke shook his head. No, I've had both for twenty years, and when they build my cairn I want them inside, and I need the axe. The climb was slow and painful. Asgalt watched with envy as Flan made his way up, his breathing never quickening nor his stride faltering. 
Asgold felt as if he weighed a ton, but stubbornly refused to discard his armor. He cursed the soft living and resolved to spend more time in the field, refusing to admit that age had anything to do with it. The land leveled, and the going became easier. Asgold pointed. There's a stream over there. Good place to rest a moment. Afterwards, it's a bad climb, but we'll have a good place to sleep. It eases off in the morning. Aethne greeted the small stream and pond with a cry of pleasure. Quickly she ran and jumped in it. Flan and Asgalt both smiled, and Flan quickly followed the girl. Asgalt slipped off his armor, and the release from the weight felt good. Then he too slipped into the pool. But knowledge of what was ahead of them and what was behind them made the stay brief. Asgalt brought the spears back, leaned them against the rock, and spread their clothes to dry. They finished the last of the food, drank some water, then slowly dressed. Just as they had finished dressing, Flan looked back up the stream, and his voice was cold and flat. Well, we're in it now. Asgalt followed his gaze. There, beside his armor and the only way out, stood three Shang warriors. The duke grunted and spat disgustedly. Three fully armed men and us with only spears. He glanced around, and the bare rock walls loomed mockingly over him. He turned, plucked a knife from his belt, and casually tossed it to Aethne. Here, girl, in case we fail. Asgalt and Flan watched stoically as the three Shang closed their ranks and began a slow march toward them. Fully armed, the two would have been more than a match for the three. Fully armed, one alone may have won, but armed with nothing but a spear apiece, and with no armor their future looked dim indeed. Both were too experienced in combat to feel they had much chance. Suddenly the Shang stopped, and one pointed with a sword. Old man! Do you know me? Look well and long, for I mean to give your dead eyes a better view on the end of my lance. Asgalt snarled and roared. You spawn of a snake! I missed you once, but I won't now. He then spoke quietly to Flan. I know that dog. We fought once before, and my horse bolted before I could kill him. Then a spay woman said he would never die by my hand. Since then he's hoped to meet me. His voice grew low and urgent. Listen, we may stand a chance. He's convinced that I want to kill him myself. What I want you to do is charge with me. Then before we hit, fall back and stab whatever comes open. I'll hit alone. But whatever you do, keep glancing at Artor, the one with the red shield. The two gripped their spears and started forward. Their right hands gripped the butts, holding them tight and close to the hip while their left hands were extended along the shaft. Their pace quickened, and both pairs of eyes glanced left. Artur the Shang muttered low to his men, and their gait increased. Suddenly Asgalt broke into a run, and Flan quickly caught up with him, but just as contact was to be made, Flan dropped back. Asgalt's spear pointed directly at the man in the center, but eyes constantly glancing left, leaped forward, spun, and drove his spear directly into the face of the man on his right. The spearhead skimmed the top of the shield, smashed upward through the roof of the mouth, and stuck in the bone of the skull. Wrenching his spear loose, he barely slid aside in time to avoid the shearing stroke of a sword. Off balance from missing his blow, the man stumbled. 
Asgalt grabbed his shield with one hand, spun him around, and drove his spear into his back. The duke looked up in time to see Artor's sword about to descend when Flan, in a clean, hard lunge, drove his spear through the body of the Shang. The spear caught Artor under the arm and actually pierced the shield on the other side of his body. Artor staggered. Shock and pain clouded his face. He looked at Flan, then back to Asgold. You didn't kill me, he muttered. Then his eyes glazed. He fell heavily, twitched, and lay still. The rest of the climb was brutal. It seemed to Asgold that he must have completely forgotten just how much physical exertion it required. He was thankful that the girl was sturdy so that only a few times were they required to actually lift her. When they reached the ledge where they would make their camp, only pride kept him from collapsing at once. The Shang had all carried food bags, so at least there was now plenty to eat. The fare was plain, but all thought they had never tasted better. Asgalt, what do we face tomorrow? A short climb, then it's merely a hard walk. Once we reach the top, it'll be over. Flan looked quizzical. How did you build a bridge? We didn't build a bridge the first time we crossed. There used to be a tree, and we got a rope caught in it, and I swung across. We built it from the other side. It was while we were trying to raise an army. It was a good place to escape to if there was need. He was determined to keep the royal blood alive and we could hole up then dash across. We built the bridge from the other side, an old Lyof cage he was, designed it so that it would be easy to chop through from this side. Other side has rock foundations. Conversation died and the stars shone down, diamond bright in the crisp, clear night air. Asgalt leaned his blade against the rock and tried to sleep, but for a change sleep eluded him. He watched Aethne and Flan, heard the low muted laughter, saw the looks into each other's eyes. He smiled to himself, and he remembered another girl, one with hair black as night and lips that were red and eyes that laughed. Another night, long ago, when he had sat with her and their eyes had met. He could still hear her laugh, see her smile, and feel the touch of her hand. How the people had gasped when he had married her and made her a duchess. The life they had was good. The pain of losing her was still with him. It had been hard, but she had given him two strong sons and two beautiful daughters, and he must see that they were taken care of. He sat up and shook off the inexplicable nostalgia. Flan, let me interrupt you, children. He took off his ducal ring. Take this. It's foolish for me to pretend I'm not bone-tired, and the two of you can make better time down the mountain to the way station than I can. Take this, show it to the guard there, and grab two fast horses and go on to Castle Jagai. Give the ring to Olwen, and have him send riders out to raise the levy. He'll know what to do. Flan took the ring. Aye, and I'll have him prepare a hero's welcome for his lord. Asgalt laughed. A hero, a hero. Hell, 
have him prepare for a tired old man. And Lyof will have parades and pageants after this is over. Now let me get some sleep. But the sleep was brief, and this time Asgalt awakened with both Aethne and Flan. Food was gulped hurriedly, and the last leg of the journey was begun. The last of the climb was hard but quick. As they reached the top, as if planned, all three turned in unison and looked back down the trail. Sun glinted off Shang armor. Shaking his head in disgust, the duke muttered, We're a lot alike, the Shang and I, we never let up and we never forget. The last portion was made at a dog trot over flat, firm earth. A quick turn, a small hill, and the bridge was before them. It spanned a chasm that was only the width of five tall men, but it extended out of sight on either side, and the eye was lost in the distance to the bottom. The bridge was a simple, crude affair, no railings, but two ropes on either side gave some security. Flan, go cut the ropes on that end while I undo these. He knelt and began working on the thick rope. By the time he had finished, Flan had cut both and was standing beside him. Asgalt stripped off his armor and began to fashion a sling to go around his body and between his legs. Once this was done, he turned to Flan and Aethne. You two go on ahead. I can cut the bridge loose from this side and cross on the two remaining ropes. This was in case we ever got caught on this side. I told you old Lyof was cagey. Flan shook his head. Let me climb down. I can cut them quicker than you. No, I helped build it. I'll cut it down. Now get on across. Asgalt secured the rope and lowered himself until he was even with the supporting posts of the bridge. He swung out and back until he had grasped a beam, then wedged himself between it and the cliff, wrapping his legs tight around the wood. He leaned back. He was tired and wanted to rest for a few minutes, but there wasn't time. He removed the axe from his belt and began to chop. The space was narrow, and the cut had to be made close to his body so that there was little room for a full swing. He swung the axe in short, hard blows, wrenching it to clear the blade on each stroke. His hand cramped and his forearm began to quiver with the strain, but he never ceased his relentless rhythm. It seemed to him that with each stroke the wood grew harder and the axe grew duller. But slowly, ever so slowly, the cut widened and deepened. He stopped thrust the axe back through his belt and massaged his aching hand and forearm. A few more should do it, he thought. Damn will I be glad to rest in a bed again beside a nice warm fire. He hooked his knees about the beam and, trusting to the thick rope, leaned out, swinging the axe upward in vicious strokes as if the wood were a personal enemy. The wood cracked and broke loose, and Asgalt kicked out and swung free in case the whole bridge broke loose, but it sagged, creaked, and held. The duke ignored the yawning chasm below him and cursed with a fervor and feeling that was awesome in its intensity. Still cursing, he pulled himself back up the rope, attached it on the other side, and began the whole process over. Sweat stung his eyes, and his back began to ache from the strained, unnatural position. He worked more slowly, and would stop after several strokes to gauge the depth of the cut and to clear his vision. The bridge creaked and sagged even further as the amount of wood holding it grew less. After what seemed hours, the top began to splinter and snap. 
He quickly slipped off the beam, and as he kicked back and away, swung the axe once more. The axe bit, the wood cracked, and the bridge slipped downward, grabbing the axe, flipping it loose from his grip. Then bridge and axe fell end over end into the depths below. Asgalt watched the dwindling shapes. Mm. Man could starve before he hit bottom, he thought. Again he pulled himself up the rope, this time more slowly. A shout greeted him, and he saw Flan and Aethne wave from the other side. Well done, Lord Duke, well done! Asgalt waved tiredly. Even his bones ached. His forearms quivered uncontrollably, and his knees were flaccid, almost unable to bear his weight. He sat down heavily, his body worn and his eyes dulled with fatigue. His hand aimlessly gripped the hilt of his sword. He gazed blindly at the mail shirt, helmet, and shield that lay at his feet. Wearily he rose and walked back along the path. Far down he could see the first of the Shang as they made the turn, walking cautiously, expecting an ambush behind every rock. Still time, he muttered under his breath. He walked back and picked up his mail, slipped it on, and buckled the sword about his waist. The familiar weight felt comforting, an old friend. Once again he sat down on the rock, ignoring the urgent shouts from Flan and Aethne. He chuckled to himself. They're right. I'm growing old. Old Lyulf was right. It comes before you know, and soon you don't even care. He looked across the gorge to Flan and Aethne and their youthful figures brought back a flood of memories, and his past life fled across his mind's eye. He remembered the aimless wanderings, the battles. He stood again on the walls of Castle Glown with Colwyn beside him, holding the breach against attack after attack until the enemy fell back, dismayed and broken and not being able to break two men. He wandered again, guarding the life of the king and the young prince, and he remembered the final charge in the battle for the crown, the foes falling before him until he had reached the standard, cutting down the bearer, and then with one stroke cutting through the helmet, head, and chest of Morgon. He realized suddenly that life had been good to him, that he had achieved a great deal, and that now the battles were over. All he had to do was walk across that rope bridge, there would be parades and feasts and even tournaments all in his honor. And once that was over, there would be a quiet life for the remainder of his years. He would grow old and slightly fat, and honors would still be heaped on him. His sons were near grown, and his daughters already promised. The kingdom was secure, no new threats, no new battles. He thought of how nice it would be to sleep in a soft bed, to take an attractive serving girl to the same bed. Yes, life would be pleasant until that final sleep in that same soft bed. The Duke of Jagai stood and warily reached for his helmet and shield, an old man, gray hair glinting in the sun and tired beyond belief. The sword flashed in a short, bright arc and the rope parted and twisted its way downward. The years of fatigue seemed to melt from his body as he buckled his helmet and dressed his shield on his arm. He stood straight and tall and strong, and his eyes were hell-bright. With a strong and steady stride, Asgalt, Duke of Jagai, marched down to meet the Shang.
This has been The Age of the Warrior by Hank Reinhardt, read by Jeff Aguiar. Thank you, Jeff. That was a special audio presentation from the hallowed and haunted coffers of the Bane Free Radio Hour podcast. And that's it for the podcast. Thanks to podcast theme composer Ruth Judkowitz. And an extra large bottle of Ghost Off Repellent and an abacus that works backward and in ancient Sumerian. Plus, thanks, praise, and plaudits for Tim Powers, author of Forced Perspectives. Please join us next time here at the hammering heart of science fiction and fantasy. And keep reaching for the stars. Stars.